Light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is unveiling Jesus Christ. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast on Unveiling Jesus Christ. I'm John Cassinet. I'll be hosting this podcast today, as always. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, section 21 in my book, if you have that and following along. And uh, today, we're going to be continuing our discussion of John's letter to the saints in Pergamos, one of the seven cities. Uh, Last time we got together, we talked uh, about Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where the saints in Pergamos were commended by the Savior, and in these verses, they are condemned. So we're going to jump right into Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, which reads, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So, essentially, when you kind of compare and contrast uh, verses 12 and 13 with verses 14 through 16, essentially, you initially had praise where the faithful saints in Pergamos were willing to die for their religion, and that's what the Savior was commending them for. But in this verse, he essentially condemns the faithless saints because they were not willing to live their religion. Uh, President Ezra Taft Benson kind of put it this way. He said, quote, Some men are willing to die for their faith, but they are not willing to fully live for it, close quote. And so that's essentially one of the conditions that existed in the uh, ancient church in Pergamos, and it's a continuing problem in the church today. And so again, we kind of see the uh, how the uh, seven churches mimic or mirror and even foreshadow conditions that will exist and do exist in the church today. So we got to pay close attention because uh, we might be able to learn something again from the saints in uh, Pergamos. Now, The problem that the saints were faced with was essentially some of them, in order to avoid persecution and even death, did so by compromising their standards. And so uh, this is essentially the true test of discipleship, is who's willing to lay down their life for their testimony of Jesus Christ. And so we read in Doctrine and Covenants section 103, verse 28, And whoso is not willing to lay down his life for my sake is not my disciple. And so this is the problem that we're faced with in Pergamos, is there there has been this compromise of standards by the Pergamos saints and others from and as reflected by various pressures that they were under. So some of the kinds of things they faced that were causing them to compromise their standards included outside pressure from persecution, seeking social acceptance, uh, among their peers and among members of society. And that was uh, reflected most specifically in the case of eating meats that had been sacrificed to idols and also paying outward homage to emperors and idols. It's kind of like you know the Pergamos saints they would they would worship the emperors with their fingers crossed right we're not really worshiping we look like we're worshiping but I have my fingers crossed so it doesn't count um, the issue with the eating of meat sacrificed to idols is something I've talked about before but by way of reminder uh, in a uh, council in Jerusalem, uh, the apostles made it clear that the saints were not to eat meat uh, that had been sacrificed to idols. And so when these sacrifices are made, a lot of time there's extra meat left over from the uh, sacrifices that were made, and those meats were then sold in shops. And so uh, it's kind of like 
today uh, with the Jews who can't eat certain kinds of food because it's not kosher. And so in a sense, these meats would not have been considered kosher, although that's a Jewish term and not a Christian term. It's, it's the same concept. Um, and so uh, this was a real problem because they were kind of an everyday uh, part of life was going down to the butcher shop. Yeah, give me some of that meat sacrifice to an idol. <laughs> Uh, that looks like a really good piece there. So uh, at any rate, uh, and, and they were uh, eaten in in people's homes at uh, the meetings of various trade guilds and so on and so forth. But the, the Christians were forbidden to eat this. And so it, it kind of set them apart in order to abide by social customs and what one would consider to be kind of just friendship and, uh, and trying to just get along and be tolerant of uh, what other people did and how they believed, they would go ahead and indulge. And it had this kind of an outward appearance of evil. So that's what we mean when we talk about the Pergamo saints seeking social acceptance. Um, another thing that uh, they did that uh, was something that caused them to kind of compromise their standards was they accepted unauthorized leaders in the church, including the false doctrines that were brought in by these uh, various leaders. And, and we see this not only in the church in Pergamos, but this, this tends to be kind of a general problem that existed within the seven churches, and, and not all of them suffered from exactly the same thing, but all of them had the tendency to have some of the same kind of problems in all of them. Among the Ephesian saints in particular, uh, there was this kind of half-heartedness and indifference, and we see that also in the church of Laodicea. Uh, but in the case of the Ephesians, the Lord talked about how it was their loss of their love for the gospel and for Jesus Christ, who was supposed to be their first love, and they'd kind of uh, gotten away from that. And and even within the church, uh, you had these uh, compromises standards because uh, there was peer pressure even within the church. And uh, this is exhibited in a letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians. And you, Paul's never one to really mince words. And he said this in Galatians 3.1, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you." Close quote. And so what Paul is saying here is that these the people he's referring to as foolish were Greek converts to the church who were essentially non-Jews, but they submitted themselves to circumcision. So, and so in a sense, they, they caused themselves to go follow after a Jewish tradition, because many of the Christian members of the church anciently, of course, were from a Jewish background. And so they had, according to the law of Moses, been circumcised. And so when the Jew, when the Greeks, who were non-Jewish, joined the church, because <laughs> all of the Jews were following the custom of circumcision, the Galatian saints, who were Greek, non-Jewish, felt kind of compelled because, well, everybody else is, is being circumcised. I, I guess I need to be circumcised too. You know, it does kind of beg the question of, you know, what are you doing? Are you running around without your clothes on? I mean, how, how do people know this? <laughs> but at any rate, there's this pressure, right? Uh, and, and I'm sure it wasn't like that. But the Greeks joining the church, of course, were never circumcised. And the Jews who were Christians, members of the church, were telling, well, you need to be circumcised if you want to be Christian like the rest of us. And so you have this inward peer pressure that Paul refers to as basically you're being foolish. That's not something you need to do. Uh, other things that were done in the ancient uh, Christian church was they tended to continue to follow uh, some of the feasts and ceremonies associated with the uh, Jewish calendar and the Law of Moses. And so that's a problem that they were kind of faced with. Now, you wonder, well, do we have anything like that in the church today? And, uh, you know, I think we could probably talk about a lot of examples of some of the things that uh, people do in the church that uh, they express as doctrines and things. This is the way you're supposed to do things. A lot of it uh, revolves around even what are appropriate uh, Sabbath day 
activities outside of church and you get into questions of well do you go shopping on Sunday do you watch TV on Sunday if you're a student do you study on Sundays and 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 we get into this kind of uh, this pharisaic ritual of having these oral traditions that uh, supposedly insulate us and make sure that we're living the gospel the way that we're supposed to but a lot of times they're they're just uh, much like the oral traditions of the uh, the law of Moses that was espoused by the uh, Pharisees. And just to give you an illustration, um, <clears throat> there was a, a law uh, that had been developed among the Pharisees that you couldn't carry your tools on the Sabbath day. And so if you happen to be someone who was a seamstress, for example, um, if you had put a, a needle in your cloth and carried it around in your lapel so it wouldn't get lost, well, if you did that on a Sabbath day, you're essentially carrying your tools, and that would be a violation of the Sabbath. So you can kind of see where some of these things fit in. Um, but I'm going to cite to one example I saw uh, not too long ago, and, and, and I'm not trying to say what is appropriate and what shouldn't be. I'm just making an observation of how I observe some peer pressure in the uh, in the church uh, building that where I was attending church one day. And uh, again, this isn't a commentary on what we're supposed to wear in sacrament meeting, but this happens to be the example that I'm using. And there's a sister who was always advocating that the sisters should uh, be allowed or it would be entirely appropriate to wear slacks to uh, Sunday. I'm not make passing judgment one way or the other, but but she became kind of this advocate for it. So she's always wearing slacks, and she would try to influence other people to do it too. And I remember walking down the hall one day and seeing her uh, doing a high five with another sister in the ward who happened to be wearing slacks that day. And she was congratulating her on not being bound down by these ancient traditions, kind of. And I thought, yeah, I, I think it's fine. You can wear whatever you want, but to go around advocating that you should do things a certain way because that's the way I happen to believe. That's my oral tradition, right? Like the Pharisees. And so uh, it, it's the kind of thing that you can run into in the, the church even today. And that's uh, something that was happening um, in the uh, church at Pergamos is, uh, and as illustrated by the saints in Galatia, was the the peer pressure from within the church trying to get people to do things away and follow certain traditions or non-traditions and changing traditions and whatever the case may be. But I, I think it's a good lesson for all of us to learn uh, that we have to be careful about compromising our standards, regardless of whether that pressure is coming from outside the church or whether it's coming sometimes even from within the church. You just have to uh, be careful of that. So in this verse, uh, as we begin, notice here that Christ starts by saying, I have a few things against thee. And the thing that he's going to be talking about are the fact that they're compromising their standards. Now, you shouldn't assume that simply because he says, I have a few things, doesn't mean these few things are trifles or they're unimportant or uh, this is necessary everything that I possibly have to say on this subject and in fact um I think the uh, we have to kind of recognize here that the few things that the Savior is talking about um, are important. Um, and we have to recognize that even little things, a little bit of leaven, can leaven the whole lump, as we're told in 1 Corinthians 5, 6. And so uh, the saints in Pergamos were embracing these doctrines of Balaam and the Nicolaitans uh, that we've talked about before, but I'm going to get into them in more detail because this is really the essence of what the problem is that the saints were facing in uh, Pergamos. And essentially it is that there were these compromised standards, an amalgamation or a homogenization, if you will, of church and worldly standards. And so when we're talking here in this verse about those that hold the doctrine of Balaam, you have to understand that this is essentially uh, a metaphorical term. So Balaam is someone who existed as a person in the Old Testament, and you, you never get the metaphor unless you understand who this person was in Old Testament history. So uh, I'm going to spend a little time today talking about who Balaam was, so essentially you can understand the nature of the metaphorical use of his name, where the Lord is condemning 
the saints at Pergamos because essentially they were living the same type of doctrine that had been espoused by Balaam. So Balaam is a, uh, a Midianite, meaning he's a descendant of Abraham. And you'll recall that Abraham had his first wife by the name of Sarah. She bore her son Isaac at a very old age. And while we're kind of waiting around for Isaac to be born and Sarah and Abraham were nervous, Abraham took his handmaid Hagar to wife and Hagar bore him Ishmael. Ishmael eventually has 12 sons in the same way that Isaac eventually had uh, 12 sons as well, or Jacob and then the 12 sons. So uh, we off, those are the two wives that we associate most often with Abraham, but he actually had a third wife as well and her name was Keturah. And Keturah had a son by the name of Midian. He was one of seven sons. So Abraham bore seven sons through Keturah, Midian being one of them. And you'll recall, uh, if you've seen the Ten Commandments, when Moses was kicked out of Egypt, he went to uh, the land of Midian. He met the daughters of Jethro, and Jethro was a uh, high priest and held the priesthood um, that he got through the line of Midian back to Keturah, the, the, the wife the, or the mother, and then, of course, back to uh, Abraham. So that's, that's where the kind of the Midianites come into play. Now, I'm putting up a map here that shows the area uh, where Midian was located. And so you'll see these tribal lands in the northwestern part of Saudi Arabia next to the Gulf of Aqaba. And uh, it also borders on the land of Edom, which is further to the north. The, the Edomites were basically descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. Um, and Isaac was the father. And so you'll remember that the Jacob and Esau were the twins. And so uh, Esau essentially had the land of Eden, which was to the north of the land of uh, Midian. And then you'll also see a little further north, it's a little, almost cut off in the map that I have here, but uh, it shows that you have the land of Moab, which is on the east side of the Dead Sea. It's part technically part of the land of Canaan. Now the Moabites were descended from Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. So these folks have a little bit of a stormy relationship uh, there um, because uh, Lot was a nephew of Abraham and not a direct descendant of Abraham. Technically speaking, the Moabites were not of uh, the lineage of Abraham, but they were closely related. Um, and when uh, Abraham came into the promised land, he brought his nephew Lot with him and they divided the land and Lot and uh, his family then took the land in the area of the Dead Sea, inclu including these lands on the eastern side. Now the Midianites, on the other hand, were of the uh, lineage of Abraham and they generally tended to be pretty friendly uh, with the Israelites. And as the Israelites were kind of wandering through the wilderness, uh, everybody tended to kind of get along as long as the uh, Israelites kind of kept their distance from the uh, Midianites and didn't try and go across their tribal lands. Well, eventually that happened. And Israel passed through the area of what would have been southern Edom and northern Midian en route to uh, ending up on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. And at the time that they were passing through, you got this king who was a Moabite king. Uh, his name was Balak, who kind of sees the Israelites as they're kind of coming in and heading in his direction. And he sees them as a threat. And so he wants to deal with them. And so what does he do? He's going to hire Balaam. Uh, and again, Balaam is from the, the tribe of Midian, and he's one of the elders of Midian, meaning he was a holder of the priesthood. His name means Lord of the people and also a devourer. So he had a prophetic gift, and he was a man of some rank and position among the Midianites, and he had a reputation that whoever he blessed would be blessed, and whoever he cursed would be cursed. So Balak recognizing this as the Moabite king and being concerned about these Israelites, he decides, I'm going to hire Balaam to uh, announce or pronounce a curse 
upon the Israelites. Now, Balak's name means a spoiler or a devastator or one who lays waste. So he sends for Balaam to come and curse Israel for a nice hefty price. You know, you, you got to be thinking and when Balaam is getting this offer from Balak to curse the Israelites, you should be bells and whistles going off, right? I, I got a bad feeling about this. <laughs> Nevertheless, Balaam goes into it uh, with his eyes wide open knowing what he's being asked to do and he even describes himself in numbers 24 4 as one who fell down with his eyes open and this is going to come into this notion of this stumbling block that we're going to begin to talk about balaam's stumbling block was the priestcraft that he was willing to engage in in other words preaching for hire uh, and uh, eventually you know just again to give you some scenes to coming attraction Actions, eventually he's going to be killed with the sword because of his involvement in what's about to happen. So at any rate, so Balak hires Balaam to, to uh, curse the Israelites. And so we get to the point in the story where we're ready to talk about the curse. This is kind of like that old movie, The Sting. You know, when you reach a, a certain segment in the movie, they put up a sign and say, The Sting. <laughs> or whatever. So here's the curse. All right. So the curse is that Balaam and Balak, they go up to the top of this high mountain, kind of overseeing the camp of the Israelites, uh, where Balak expects Balaam is going to pronounce this curse. But in fact, Balaam was constrained by the Lord and couldn't utter a curse. And in fact, he blessed Israel. <laughs> So Balak isn't too happy about this. They said, well, let's try it on a different mountain. So they move over to a different mountain and uh, same thing that happens. And uh, they figure out, well, maybe third time's the charm. So they try it again on a different mountain. They get the same result. So Balak is uh, unhappy. They part company. Balaam is unhappy because he's not getting paid. So that's the curse. Turns out it's not a curse. All right, so now we're ready to move on to Let's talk about the stumbling block, because this is essentially the message, the metaphorical message that we're talking about that the Pergamos saints are having troubles with. Okay, so the thing that Balaam knew, even though he couldn't curse the Israelites directly and get paid for it, he knew that the Israelites could be defeated if they committed sins and transgressions. And so he has this idea that if we can get the Israelites to sin, he then knew that the Lord would withdraw his favor from the Israelites and they would become weakened against other nations. And so uh, this is a pretty standard fare. We all understand this. For example, in Doctrine and Covenants section 8210, it says, I, the Lord, am bound when ye do what I say, but when ye do not what I say, ye have no promise. And so we get a real good illustration of that happening in a lot of Old Testament stories where you keep the commandments, you uh, conquer your enemies. If you don't, you get conquered. That happens to us today spiritually, and a lot of times we don't recognize it as what it is because these spiritual kind of things that aren't hitting us over the head the way temporal things do, we tend to lose sight of them a little bit. So at any rate, Balaam tells Balak uh, what you need to do in order to defeat the Israelites is you need to befriend Israel, become friendly with them and, and uh, get them to participate with you in idol worship uh, that the Moabites engaged in. Now, it's important to note that the Lord had specifically commanded the Israelites to have no dealings with the Moabites. They're non-Israelites. Remember, they're, they're Lot's uh, descendants, and so they're not Israelites. And so the Lord tells them, you ought to have nothing to do with them. And in Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 4, it specifically says, to the 10th generation. Right. That's one of those symbolic numbers, a whole of a part. So essentially you are to have no connection with them. OK, so that's the commandment. But yet here Balaam is saying, but if you can get them to have friendly dealings with you, in other words, instead of having no dealings, have dealings and you will be able to defeat them. And and Balaam is just he's just Judas like. Right. I mean, he's a guy that knows um, the Israelite ways. He's a Midianite. He is of the tribe uh, of the offspring of Abraham. Um, and uh, so 
He's just like a Judas, and uh, he told Balak what to do and earned the wages of uh, betrayal. And so, sure enough, uh, Balak and uh, some of the good-looking gals from uh, the Moabites go over. They're, well, these are really pretty girls. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they decide, yeah, let's have a party. And, uh, you know, you can just kind of see the uh, the Moabites coming in. Hey, come on, guys, we're practically relatives. Remember Lot, the nephew of Abraham? Uh, you know, I think about this and uh, as I, I see this uh, vision. Uh, remember the 1992 L.A. riots? Uh, it was just a horrible condition. And out of it all came a guy by the name of Rodney King, who one time, you know, had his his 15 minutes of fame when he said basically, can't we all just get along? <laughs> so I kind of see this as being a light like these Moabites coming into the Israelite as, hey guys, can't we all just get along? Let's be friendly like, all right? Um, and, and here's an interesting kind of quote because uh, this is a guy, uh, and I just found this online, his name's Quentin R. Bufogel, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it, it, it kind of to me, speaks to this concept of the world, these Moabites, worldly people coming in and trying to get the Israelites to uh, accept them. You guys should be tolerant of us, and uh, we should all be getting along, and we, you should be more accepting of us, and these types of things. And so this is what uh, Mr. Bufogel says that I think speaks a lot to what people today think when they try and do the same things as they come into our churches and, and they approach us in our beliefs, say, you know, why, why can't you guys uh, tolerate us for uh, uh, social standards that exist in the world today? And he said this, quote, tolerance is not acceptance. And that's the problem with all religion. It teaches acceptance only for those who believe exactly as you do, and at best, tolerance for the rest of us, quote, sinners, close quote, sorry, not acceptable, close quote. And so that's his, his take on this idea of how religions kind of sometimes reject worldly standards. And there's, there's lots of them that exist in the world today. Uh, there's this whole thing of, of toleration and, and everyone getting along and accepting people uh, with regard to uh, their sexual preferences, the, the way marriage is treated. All of these kinds of things uh, are all the worldly standards that, uh, generally speaking, are, are something that are not accepted within the church as a matter of doctrine. And uh, while the church is certainly willing to give everyone the right to worship who the who they will what they will and how they will um, that's not enough for this and that's what uh, Bufogel is kind of saying it's not enough for you to just tolerate it you have to accept us okay and so society tends to equate the notion of tolerance with acceptance and the real meaning in much of society and the world today is when we say that you need to be more tolerant what we really mean is you need to adopt our standards and that's the problem and that's what's going on here in uh, the Old Testament at the time of Balak as the uh, the Moabites come in and say come on guys let's just have a party let's just all get along you should just do what we're doing and eventually the Israelites did and so they made sacrifices they bowed down to the Moabite gods in the name of tolerance and in the name of acceptance and it was all a compromise of their standards they ate meat from the idolatrous altars that eventually led them to some of the grosser sins, such as the commission of fornication. And the consequence of all this is that the Lord sent a curse upon the Israelites and 24,000 Israelites were destroyed and Balaam died by the sword. Remember, I warned you that was coming. <laughs> and so this is, this is the net effect of uh, compromising your standards. And that's the nature of the metaphor that the Savior is using when he's talking to the Pergamos saints about this is what happens uh, what, when you 
compromise your standards in the way that Balaam did. So this is the doctrine of Balaam, to compromise your standards in the name of tolerance, in the name of acceptance. And this is what happens. Uh, for the Israelites, it was 24,000 of them died physically, but how many more of us when we compromise our standards are destroyed spiritually because of our doing so. And so uh, essentially, uh, as we look at what Balaam did, he compromised his spiritual gift, his prophetic gift that he had. Um, and uh, he loved the wages of sin more than God. He engaged in uh, priestcraft. And so the doctrine of Balaam if we can kind of boil it down a little bit, is this divination for hire. Uh, it is uh, giving counsel that is contrary to the divine will. It's perverting the right way of the Lord and to gain the wealth and honors of men and to preach for money or to gain personal power or influ influence. So, so Balaam is the great compromiser, and this doctrine has endured long, long after his death by the sword. And uh, it is the condemnation to die of all those who compromise their moral standards. And in the case of the ancient Israelites, it was the temporal death. And in the case of everybody else, including those of us who live today and compromise standards, uh, it is to die spiritually as well. So the definition of priestcraft, which I've kind of kicked around this term a little bit in connection with Balaam, it's actually defined very well in 2 Nephi 26:29, it says, priestcraft is defined as, quote, men preach and set themselves up for a light unto the world that they may get gain and praise of the world, but they seek not the welfare of Zion. And so that's the definition. So it's essentially any type of craft or business of being a priest or religious leader for monetary gain. And, and here's the real danger of it, as you can all kind of recognize that when a person is being paid to preach, um, or it is his business to earn money by the nature of his teachings, it's always the danger is that they will teach things which are popular and acceptable to the hearers who also happen to be the donors because the donors aren't going to want to give if they're not hearing things that uh, they really want to hear. And so you give them what they want and that's the danger of uh, priestcraft. So, so that's the nature of the metaphor that we're talking about. It is an acceptance of false religion and a compromise of standards. It is a befriending of the world and worldly standards. And I, I illustrate this with uh, reference to uh, a great movie that I really enjoyed from uh, many years ago called Chariots of Fire. And uh, this movie won a lot of Academy Awards back in the day. And it's about these uh, runners from uh, Great Britain who uh, we're going to compete in the 1924 Olympics. So it's based on a true story. And there was one of the runners was a guy by the name of Eric Little. And uh, he was a devout Christian from Scotland. And at the beginning of the movie, you see him observing some boys who were playing uh, soccer on the Sabbath day. And so he kind of goes to him and says, boys, you know you can't be playing ball, soccer on uh, on Sunday. And he kind of admonished them and encouraged them to go to their church services. So at any rate, that's kind of where you see him. And, and so he's this great runner. And uh, eventually, he goes on to compete in the 1924 Olympics in France. But it turns out that the first heat for his 100 meters race was on a Sunday. And so he tells the English Olympic Committee chairperson that he can't run on Sunday. And the, uh, he's about ready to spark this major international incident because you'd have to go to the, the French to say, hey, can we change the time or can, we, can you accommodate our guy who doesn't want to run on Sunday? And of course, little is brought into the, uh, the uh, English Olympic Committee, including the Prince of Wales and these other mucky mucks. And uh, I mean, the pressure is on, you know, and unfortunately, right, it, they reach the breaking point of you're going to have to run and they know he's going to say no. <laughs> <laughs> Another runner comes in, saves the day, trades races so that Little 
can go ahead and run the 400 meters and not have to race um, in his first heat in the 100 meters on a Sunday. And so as he's getting ready to uh, run the 400 meters, everybody's kind of saying, oh, he's never going to last the distance. He's this sprinter, right? Um, and uh, the the the, the guy who was supposedly the favorite in the race, this Charlie Paddock, was also a U.S. Olympian. And, and one of his teammates, a guy by the name of Jackson Schultz, as the 400-meter as the race is about to begin, not on Sunday, uh, Schultz hands Little this note, and, and he puts it in his palm. And the note basically says, and so this is an American Olympian giving to Eric Little a note that says, Mr. Little, it says in the old book, he that honors me, I will honor. And with that, Little kind of crunches up the note in his fist, gets down in the blocks, runs the race, and of course wins over the favored runner from the United States, Charlie Paddock. And uh, um, I, I like that story because we all have these occasions when we're being asked to compromise our standards, and, and so it was with Little. And uh, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about it was the Olympic Committee members as they're meeting, you know, they're reaching the breaking point where they were gonna have to give him this ultimatum just when the other runner comes in and gives them an option. And one of them kind of, as they meet privately afterwards, they say, well, I'm glad that came in because he was never gonna change his mind. They already knew they would never change his mind. And, and so must it also be with us in our faith and in our commitment to living the standards of the church today. And it's a decision you really have to make uh, before you're faced with the difficulty. And for Little, it was. Uh, he made it long before that pressure point came. Uh, and everybody always knew that uh, he was never going to change his mind. And I sometimes wonder if we all were that firm in our commitment to living the gospel to never compromising our standards, and everybody knew it, how much easier our life would be because nobody would come around. I think that's even true of Satan. If Satan knows I've got no chance with this guy or gal, I'm not even going to bother this person because it's not going to do me any good anyway. And so he'll go find somebody who's a little bit weaker in character and doesn't have that kind of faith. So be firm in your faith and, and make that decision early on because I think it'll uh, bless you in the end. So at Pergamo, some of the compromise standards that were occurring specifically, and I kind of mentioned them generally before, but uh, essentially the saints in Pergamos were eating things offered to, to idols, the meat offered to idol. They associated with uh, idolaters in the pagan temples. They partook of various religious festivals. Um, they were compromising and tolerant, accepting, adopting, if you will, of people who had come into church bringing these compromised standards with them. And they basically allowed them to come in rather than kind of taking a stand. And it's all in this name of friendship and getting along and, and just trying to keep the peace, right? And and we, I think, sometimes fall into that trap too. We, we just kind of want to get along. And can't we just everybody be at peace with one another? And then you what comes to my mind when you think of just trying to keep the peace uh, about as it relates to our religious standards, think of the words of the Savior in Matthew 10:34, where he said, quote, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword, close quote. And this is the context in which I think he was speaking, and that differs a lot from, of course, our Christian or Christmas views of the Savior coming, uh, peace on earth, goodwill to men, and, and, and the Savior is the Prince of Peace, of course, but he recognizes there there is a price that must be paid for the ultimate peace that we are intended to enjoy um, in the hereafter. And sometimes um, maintaining our standards will not be easy um, and uh, it comes more in the nature of a sword than uh, peace but essentially you have these 
false teachers within the uh, church um, who were advocating compromise with pagan cults for social acceptance because they were trying to have the peace rather than the sword. Um, and so the lesson is that uh, Israel could not be cursed just as we cannot be cursed as long as we maintain our standards. But if we fail to maintain our standards, then we fall into the same trap that the Israelites fell into that the Lord would curse us or at least withhold our blessings if you want to say it a little bit nicer way um, and that happens when we yield to sin and when we yield to temptation by a compromise of our standards now continuing on in verse 14 it also states that Balaam taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Now I've told you the story, and here the Savior in his metaphor is talking about it in terms of this stumbling block before the children of Israel. So let's talk first just a second about what it means to uh, have a stumbling block. So the stumbling block for the Israelites um, back in the Old Testament were that they compromised their standards as a call it a gesture of friendship, a token of friendship, whatever you want to call it, but that was their stumbling block because part of their toleration and compromise was to uh, sacrifice, to, to eat things that had been sacrificed to idols. So the uh, to not eat would have been tantamount to becoming a societal recluse in the days of the saints in Pergamos because all of society did it. It was like, uh, you know, on Christmas Eve, not Christmas Eve, but New Year's Eve, uh, we, we're all supposed to have a toast. And so everybody's walking around, standing around. I got to have some champagne. It's just not Christmas Eve. <laughs> I'm stuck on Christmas. But New Year's Eve, you can't have New Year's Eve without drinking a toast. Well, you know, today we solved that with the Martinelli's and stuff like that, I suppose. But it's those kinds of things. And that's what the uh, the Pergamo Saints were kind of faced with. And so if you don't eat the meat that had been sacrificed to idols, then you're not going to be engaged in the trade guilds, uh, which were basically the uh, the unions that ran all the shops and uh, the businesses. And so you're kind of on the outside looking in. Uh, from both a social and a business standpoint. And uh, so that's the problem that we're being faced by the uh, saints in Pergamos. Now, the Greek word for stumbling block is scandalon. And I, I like the word because it sounds a lot like scandal. It's a scandal if you compromise your standards. So that, that's how you can remember it. But it has a little bit of a different meaning and connotation. Essentially, a scandalon in the Greek language is uh, defined as a snare or a trap with a stick that holds the bait to trigger the trap. Okay, and so uh, you can kind of uh, associate this with the, uh, the harmless cheese on a mousetrap, right? The bait on the mousetrap. And it's out there on that little stick and the mousey mouse, <laughs> he kind of comes in, steps on, just starts nibbling on that cheese. And the next thing you know, springs the trap, right? Well, that's what that's what a scandal on is. And that's, that is uh, translated as a stumbling block, all right? And so the, the scandalon or the stumbling block is essentially a worldly enticement that causes sin or a loss of faith. And sometimes these worldly stumbling blocks, just like this little bit of cheese on that uh, mousetrap, it can be really small things. It, it doesn't have to be these huge things. And in fact, that's the nature of a stumbling block is that it tends to be something very small in nature. And I'm reminded when I was at the University of Wyoming, uh, you know, we, we had a fairly good sized contingent of members of the church. But when you compared us on a percentage basis for the number of other students who were not uh, members of the church, there were many more who were not than were. Right. Um, and and I find I found that uh, some of my friends and members of the church 
would go to the local bars. Uh, and I, I never could understand that. I, I just couldn't get it. Uh, and you know, when I asked him, why do you go to those places? He said, we just go for the dancing, right? Uh, and not for the booze and everything else. And the, the horrible environment that existed. Not, not that I would know. Okay, yes, I have stepped foot in a bar. So I know what they're like, okay? But uh, I've never done anything in a bar. Uh, I've never got dancing and, and I've never drank and all that sort of stuff. But so I knew what it was like. And, and you know, I just couldn't understand it. And so they're saying, well, we just go for the debt. Well, yeah, but we're supposed to avoid the very e appearance of evil. And I can't, I don't want to be judgmental, but I suspect there's sometimes a little bit more than just dancing going on was my concern. And that's the stumbling block is you just go for the dancing, but eventually the larger sin prevails. Other than just avoiding the appearance of evil, you engage in the evil. And that's that's the scandal on. That's the stumbling block that you faced with. And for the Israelites, anciently it was eating the meat offered to idols, but you're doing it with your fingers crossed. I'm not really worshiping because I'm uh, I'm just doing it to be tolerant, to be accepting, to be friendly. Um, just trying to get along. Um, but the next thing you know, they're engaged in uh, immoral conduct. And so that's the, the, the real danger uh, behind the trap or the trigger uh, of the uh, scandal on or the stumbling block. And so the process essentially, um, the stumbling block calls us to kind of trips us up a little bit with these small compromises in the name of tolerance, friendship and acceptance. And the next thing you know, you're okay, we're eating some meats offered to idols. And the next thing you know, uh, if you can kind of compare it to the iron rod and the tree of life dream that uh, Lehi had and how people were trying to get to the tree of life and their they're holding on to the iron rod and and notice that how they the the words that they use specifically are they were clinging to it right you had to cleave to uh, the iron rod you let loose for just a second and it's not like for that one moment that you let loose of it that suddenly you're a mile away from it you're still very close because typically it's something very small that uh, causes you to step away and then a little bit further and then a little bit further and that that story and that uh, situation was well uh, described by uh, Elder Uchtdorf in his story about the uh, the jetliner that was off in its directions by just one degree and over the course of a number of hundreds of miles that one degree meant you know you're off course by many miles and they crashed into uh, a mountain that uh, they didn't realize was in front of them so that's the nature of uh, the stumbling block and uh, uh, we face it today just like the uh, saints in Pergamos faced it and uh, and sometimes it's easy sometimes we justify ourselves a little bit in terms of uh, the compromise of our standards and we see an illustration of that in 1 Samuel 15:22 and you recall the story is that uh, the uh, king had been told that you're supposed to, the Israelite king was told that uh, you're supposed to go in and, and kill all of the Amalekites. Um, and so uh, instead of doing so, um, the Israelites uh, kind of kept some of the uh, the flocks uh, as, a, as kind of a bounty. Um, and uh, when Samuel learned this, he he uh, confronted the king, and 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 this is what we find in First Samuel fifteen twenty two, and it's probably familiar to most of you. It says, "Quote." And Samuel said. Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. And so the justification was that, well, we save some of the best stuff because we're going to offer them to the Lord. And so that's a really good thing. And it's kind of a a decent justification but the Lord says no I, I told you to do this and it's more important that you be obedient than to offer a sacrifice and to have some justification for your disobedience and so the same lesson is true for us sometimes uh, we do things in the compromise of our standards that are with the best of intentions um, and uh, that's not the way the Lord operates and, and that's what we learn from 1st Samuel 15 22 so let me conclude this discussion 
with the words of President Ezra Taft Benson, who said this, quote, We do not compromise principle. We do not surrender our standards regardless of current trends or pressures. As a church, our allegiance to truth is unwavering. Speaking out against immoral or unjust actions has been the burden of prophets and disciples of God from time immemorial. Close quote. So uh, I think that's a, a nice way to kind of end this uh, discussion of verse uh, 14 in Revelation 2. So now let's move on to uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 15 which the Lord says, which states, quote, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate, close quote. Now, I've already talked about the uh, Nicolaitans in connection with the podcast that I did on Revelation 2.6 on February 4th, 2024. Um, and so there the, uh, the Nicolaitans were described in connection with the uh, saints at uh, Ephesus and the fact that uh, the Ephesian saints basically hated the Nicolaitans as did the Savior. So this is the second time now that the Lord is speaking about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and saying, these, I hate this sin. I hate what these people do. Not saying he hated the people, but certainly the, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was something that the Lord did not mince words when he said, I hate this. <laughs> so essentially, uh, I'm going to state it very briefly that uh, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was the moral equivalence uh, of the doctrine of Balaam. And, and this idea is kind of captured in the names. So Balaam is uh, something that essentially means he who swallows down the nation and Nicholas, which is the name from whence we get the Nicolaitan doctrine, means he who conquers the people. So the doctrine of the Nicolaitans included immorality and priestcraft at uh, Ephesus, uh, which the Lord uh, staunchly condemned, and the saints in Pergamos were condemned for their compromised standards for engaging in acts that were tantamount to those that were engaged in by the Nicolaitans. So uh, that uh, is all I really feel like I need to say about verse 14, 15, because you can go back and take a look at Revelation 2.6 in my commentary from my podcast from February 4th. So uh, at any rate, let's move on to uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 16, where the Lord says, quote, Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Close quote. So the command to repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, is something that in this context where the Savior is saying, I will come quickly, the entire church is threatened with swift and sudden judgment. Um, and th that we see is part of the, the metaphor that the Savior used when he describes them engaging in the doctrine of Balaam. What happened was Balaam got the Israelites to sin and boom, 24,000 of them died really quickly. And so that's the, the nature of the metaphor continuing where the Lord is not saying, I will come unto thee quickly. He's not talking about a second coming appearance, something way off 2,000 years in the future. He's saying, you're going to have these judgments that will come upon you quickly and the entire church is essentially threatened with swift and sudden judgment. And so this is because the uh, the saints were tolerating the Nicolaitan and Balaam doctrine in their midst, meaning they were eating uh, things sacrificed to idols, which then became kind of this uh, crucial test of faithfulness. And uh, the Balaamites, uh, those who were practicing these kinds of things essentially persuaded the church that it really didn't make that much difference that you're eating things sacrificed on it because you got your fingers crossed, right? Um, and so uh, because it was treated as this thing that was kind of indifferent, uh, that's why the Lord is staunchly coming out against them. And so the fault of the saints in Pergamum 
was their indifference to the error of the Nicolaitans and the Balaamites. It is this minor stumbling block. It's a trifle. It's inconsequential. What does it matter what I wear on Sunday? What does it matter if I shop on Sunday? What if I have a hundred other little things uh, that I do uh, as I slowly loosen my grip on the iron rod and suddenly I'm no longer clinging, I'm no longer cleaving, I'm one step away, I'm two steps away, I'm far enough away that I'm going to crash into a mountain. That's kind of essentially uh, what it uh, amounts to. Now, I like another little illustration that I'll use from the movie called Lady Hawk. So this was a, a medieval movie where there was this petty thief called Philippe the Mouse who escapes from the dungeon of Aquila at the beginning of the movie. And so Marquet, who's the captain of the guard, uh, has to eventually come and report to the Bishop of Aquila that uh, Philippe the Mouse has escaped. And so the bishop, as he's being told that someone has escaped from Aquila, he tells Marquet, he says, no one ever escapes from the dungeons of Aquila. People accept that as a historical fact. And Marquet responds, well, it'll be a miracle if he even manages to get through the sewer system. And the bishop says, I believe in miracles, Marquet. It's part of my job. <laughs> I don't know if you've probably seen the movie. That's probably not a very good impression of the bishop, but that's what he says. He says he believes in miracles because it's part of his job. And then Marquet, and here's the point I'm trying to make. Marquet says to the bishop, it's only one insignificant petty thief. And the bishop says this, and it's pretty prescient, I think. He says, great storms announce themselves with a simple breeze. And I think so it is with the, the kind of sins that we encounter in this day, our toleration for the little things that don't seem to be that important. These are like a simple breeze that are announcing a great storm. Um, and that's the nature of the stumbling block that we have in our lives. It's just this one small misstep that results in a great fall. And that's how it begins. And so in this verse, we also encounter the sword of Christ's mouth as we did in Revelation 2.12. And so the same imagery appears in Revelation 1.16. And so if you want, you can go back and take a look when I talked about uh, the, the sword and the symbolism of the sword in Christ's mouth. Check, check out my podcast from uh, February 18th of 2024. It's, it covers the verses of Revelation 2, 12 through 13. And so I'm not going to repeat all that content again, but, but that's where you can go and figure out a lot about the imagery about this uh, sword that's in the uh, mouth of Jesus Christ. But essentially it is that Christ is thre threatening to fight against them who carry out the deeds of the Nicolaitans and the Balaamites. And so the sword used by the Lord is an offensive weapon against those who commit sin. So if you ignore his word, this word that comes from his mouth, what it will be accompanied by this sword because people will be held accountable for the consequences of ignoring the word of the Lord. And uh, just the same way, that there were these 24,000 Israelites in the days of Balaam who were surgically destroyed by the Lord with a sword, um, so it will be for us in the last days. The Lord knows who is sinning, who is uh, having stumbling blocks and committing the grosser sins associated with those stumbling blocks. And uh, for those who are covenant people, uh, if you engage in Balaam-like offenses, then this is the threat that the Savior is making. And, you know, he's probably not really one to threaten. It's probably more in the nature of a promise. <laughs> so just kind of keep that in mind. But uh, those who commit Balaam-like offenses are those who are betrayers of Christ's trust. They are purveyors of uh, priestcraft. Um, back in the, the Missouri days in the 1800s, 1830s, to be a little bit more specific, there were a number of uh, members of the church that became disaffected through, for various reasons, and uh, they eventually became these Judas-like enemies of the church. They signed false affidavits against the prophet and uh, caused him to be arrested and put in uh, Liberty Jail. 
and he wrote of them in a letter on December 16 of 1838. And this was how he described these men who had become disaffected and were Judas-like in their attitude toward the prophet and toward the church. He said, quote, these men, like Balaam, being greedy for reward, sold us into the hands of those who loved them, for the world loves his own, close quote. And so that was the uh, the prophet Joseph Smith, I think, uh, giving a pretty good uh, explanation of uh, what it is like to engage in priestcraft, what it is like to uh, be guilty of Balaam-like conduct. So with that, let me conclude uh, by just uh, saying what I've been saying really all along, and that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there can be no compromise. Uh, we must all be on guard against these stumbling blocks, uh, no matter what the reason, no matter what the justification, in the, for the sake of friendship, toleration, acceptation, whatever it may, may be, uh, these small missteps can lead to a great fall. And so uh, I encourage all of you, along with myself, to be ever vigilant uh, against uh, the stumbling blocks that appear in our lives. And I, I hope that will be the case for all of us. So, hey, thanks again for listening, subscribing, sharing. Uh, remember, caring is sharing. Uh, thanks to Jenna Daly for all the uh, technical help that uh, we've gotten. Tomorrow we're going to uh, begin a several-part series on Revelation 2.17. So you may have noticed sometimes I kind of combine verses um, to uh, cover something that appears to be related in different verses and put them all together. Uh, this is an unusual case. We're actually going to break down Revelation 2.17 into several parts because uh, there's a lot to deal with. And the first part is going to deal with the concept of hidden manna as a representation of earth eternal life. So that's what we'll be talking about the, the next time we get together, and uh, I look forward to seeing you then.